Well, it's another episode of Digital Noise, and man, how are you doing today, Richard? Oh, I'm I'm doing bloody great, I am. Um, okay, that's good. Top of the morning and all that. Jolly-o. Are you doing a Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins impression? I don't know what you're on about, I don't. I'm clearly Richard of the Whitakers from, from the British Wait place. Wait a minute, what is this? What? Oh no! What Blimey! the hell? You, you were wearing a Richard mask! It's... Wait a minute, how can you be here? You're Brian from the alternate universe. <laughs> I'm back, baby. But you're dead in this universe. Really? Yeah. Oh, might as well have an Irish wake then. Beer? Beer. All right. And I'm back once again to host another episode, another stimulating episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. Hooray! Hurrah! 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 The bells are ringing, the people are celebrating, monkey's just sleeping. Mo- yeah, monkey is, <laughs> is unimpressed by all of this. But I'm back. Thank you guys so much for continuing to listen to this show. I'm assuming they kept recording it. I don't know. But I feel like I've been away for far too long. And it's just, it's nice to be back on the couch. Well, we'll be uh, basically having a new format now where every week it's a little bit different, and it's mainly because Brian and I get pretty busy with running this site, yes. and so we've arranged this new schedule so that each of us every third week get a week off. It's basically a digital noise <laughs> shell game. It'll just be shuffling up all the time. You'll yeah. never know exactly when one of us will uh, will not be here and who those will be. So for you limey lovers, yes, Richard will be back. In fact, he'll be back next week. But uh, we'll be rotating it around regularly. There will never be... You'll never have to go more than a week without whoever your favorite member of Digital Noise is. We'd have to be bleeding barmy not to put him back in the lineup. Yeah, it's just stop it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, guys, I uh, want to remind you that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes and Stitcher if you just search for one of us in their uh, podcast area. You can also like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet, and you can follow this show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast, that's D-I-G-I NoiseCast, and if you haven't become a subscriber already, please consider doing so. We have levels at 2 to $25 every month, and we've got lots of cool incentives that we are stocking up on as we speak more and more things rolling out for our subscribers exclusive to them thank you so much for supporting the site uh and definitely keep the i think we've we've been posting images of it everywhere but keep august 15th through the 17th open uh if you have any way to get here to austin you're really going to want to because that is the first ever roll fest of us yes where you will join brian i and the rest of the cast of one of us.net, or at least those that live in Austin anyway. Uh, <laughs> some of them are coming here for it, to be fair. That's true, and I like how we're tempering our promises. Exactly. <laughs> some of them, if not most of them, but not necessarily all of them. <laughs> but definitely Brian and I, yes. as we carouse around town, hit a lot of the high spots and get, and you can watch us act like drunken idiots. Probably the low spots, too. We don't want to rule those out. Oh, well, yeah. They have the best beer. Yeah, we'll see if Martin takes everybody to a strip club. <laughs> I'm not not going oh no no not after last time <laughs> don't go to the vip room is all i'm saying nope anyway it's time to reach out to the inner and receive i knew at one point 
I knew at one point I was going to mess this up, and of course it would be the week I've come back after vacation. You're a little out of practice. You're a little rusty. And it's I'm okay. Stretch my. Tongue. You know what? It's okay, honey. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll try again later. No, <laughs> no. It happens to every guy. <gasps> it's time to reach out to the Inosphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers. We call the letter. Got mail. Yes, thank you, Torgo. The letterbox. Woo! F- felt like John Mashuda there for a second. Thought I was selling micro machines. <laughs> so our That's, first that, that takes no one back except maybe me because yeah. I'm old enough to know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's an obscure reference. Yeah. It's okay. Don't worry about it. The guy was on Coke most of the time. Fred Marner asks, What movie or movies did your opinion change the most drastically or dramatically from the first time you saw it to the second time? Both for better and worse. Well, I mean, definitely as far as better was Fight Club for me. Yeah? I really didn't care for it that much the first time I saw it. And I was a big David Fincher fan already. Mm -hmm. But I was just, it was, the ugliness of it really turned my stomach the first time I saw it. I mean, I was really with Roger Ebert on that one, who also initially gave it a horrible review and then came back later and said, okay, well, it's just, that movie is such a visceral punch to the gut. And And the face. And the the balls. And the nose. It was just a little much for me the first time, and I needed time to think about it. And thankfully, Martin talked me into giving it a second shot in the theater and i really loved it the second time i saw it yeah i think for me it would be first blood because uh i saw that movie when i was working in a video store in college and for whatever reason uh i mean i wasn't as well versed in the canon of stallone as i am now but uh for some reason that just bored me and then a couple years later i saw it again and i was like that college version of me is a fucking idiot (laughs) because this is amazing and i absolutely love it so uh, i think most dramatically would be that or the other way around was there was a movie that I saw at Fantastic Fest a few years ago called uh, End of the Line, which I was love that movie. You know, I really liked it the first time I saw it. And then I realized the second time I saw it, I was like, wow, this is the acting's kind of stilted and, and wooden. And I'm not really sure I'm digging this. Why did I like it so much? <gasps> the beer. That's right. <laughs> there was like three buckets of beer consumed during that movie. So it started to make more sense to me why I thought it was the greatest thing ever when I saw it. Uh, so, and the, yeah, to be completely fair, the other side of that coin, definitely end of the line. Uh, thank you for your question, Fred. Next up, Jose Rivera. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Digital Noise. Coming up to the plate, batting cleanup, Jose Rivera. He asks... What movies do you wish had sequels? And we can't say Buckaroo Banzai, that's too easy. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been cool if they had ever made a sequel to The Matrix. That would have been Yeah, cool. that would have been. Too bad they didn't. Yeah, or you know what? Prequels to Star Wars would have been cool. Like showing us the early story? No, that would have sucked. Yeah? They should have just made sequels. Well, fair enough. Yeah, prequels were a terrible. would have been a terrible idea. I would have watched the hell out of another Team America World Police movie. I know that drove Matt and Trey absolutely insane making that film. I know they were like... Halfway through it, we were just like, fuck this, we're never doing puppets again. But I thought it was hilarious, and I would like to see... And maybe because it's like I grew up watching reruns of the old Gary Anderson stuff. Uh, you know, not just Thunderbirds, but like Captain Scarlet and and stuff like that. So I really would have liked to have seen another Team America movie. I don't know. You know, there's so many possible answers to this question, quite frankly. I mean, like Nightbreed comes to mind immediately Mm. as a movie that I wish I'd done better so it could have scored a sequel because that was a trilogy in the making right there. It just didn't do well enough to garner anything like that. 
But I mean, obviously, my my you guys you've already told me I can't do my default answer. My second default answer is Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even bigger trouble in even smaller China. And oddly, my third one is another Carpenter film, Prince of Darkness. I would have loved Ooh. to have seen that story continue. Yeah, yeah, that would have been cool. Although, preferably not directed by John Carpenter. Yeah, not now. No. Not now. <laughs> Neither one of those things directed by John Carpenter. <laughs> it's so sad, man. He was so good. Give it to Scott Derrickson. He could do it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for your questions. We're going to slam the lid shut on the letterbox for another week and slide it back under Chris's bed where it belongs. And we're going to move on to the reviews. And remind you guys, once again, everything we talk about, there's going to be a little image there on the page. Uh, if you're listening to this on oneofus.net, you'll see on the page there's a little thumbnail for each title we talk about. If you click on that, it takes you directly to Amazon. As long as you buy something via that click, it doesn't matter what it is, even if it's not that item. You got there via the link. That means we get a cut of whatever you bought, and we really do appreciate that. Thank you. Please keep doing it. And we're going to set sail this week with Noah. So sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip yeah. of a crotchety old man and his wife and kids who all thought he was a total dick. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Here on Biblical Isle. You know, like, all right, so I think it's pretty well known out there. I'm not the religious type. And even most of my friends who are consider themselves Christian or Jewish or what have you, don't take the Old Testament literally. So, like, even, you know, if someone makes a literal, like, oh, no, this is what really happened version of Noah, I wouldn't have even watched it, quite frankly. Like, no interest at all. Yeah. This is not that. This is crazy filmmaker Darren Aronofsky, who yeah. makes movies like The Fountain, going, I want to do my version of The Take of Noah. And apparently Darren's not terribly religious himself either. But this is a odd interpretation of the biblical story to say the least to yeah. say the least now apparently i've been told by people who are much more well versed with the bible than i am i.e any six-year-old you talk to <laughs> uh that the one of the weird creations that i thought was made entirely just for this movie were the like the rock creatures yeah apparently they do show up in a different part of the bible and are actually more prevalent in the watchers yes apparently they're more prevalent in in uh jewish uh, myth I don't know if mythology is going to be an offensive word, but in Jewish mythology, it's it's a more prevalent creature. Uh, so it's not something that was completely created for Noah. Yeah, but not, I remember, I was like, my preschool class never talked about Nick Nolte rock monsters. They're not know. golems, no. to be sure. They're, they're fallen angels. Rock monsters? <laughs> down, down, said God. <laughs> down to earth where people are going to beat you up. Um, yeah, in the context of this, they're like fallen angels who aren't quite as fallen as devils but right. they're like trapped on earth with man and man is already becomes like egotistical and superstitious and whenever he encounters them he kills them and they eat meat oh my god they eat meat yeah, they it, must be destroyed is darren aronofsky a vegetarian because there's movie... a strong vegetarian message in this oh it's film. an agenda yeah. like it's like i understand i guess the point that was trying to be made was that the the people weren't being respectful of god's other creations so they tried to put it in as, as ghastly a light as possible. But here's the thing. If they didn't eat those animals, they would have died. Yeah. So it's not like they were like 
sinning just to sin. Like, oh, these animals are here. It'll be really fun to kill them and eat their flesh. It was like, I'm starving to death. Yeah. Even, you know, on the Ark itself, you'd be like, all right, well, let's face it. Some of these species ain't going to make it. Yeah. So they had the giant spin the wheel of what's for dinner tonight. Oh, look like we're having velociraptors it, this evening. It's too bad unicorn's flesh is so damn tasty oh, otherwise. Man. They were like, yeah, somebody manipulated the wheel. They had a little button underneath it, like at a roulette table. Unicorn, delicious. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, Russell Crowe. Uh, yo, all right, so the thing I'm going to say about this for sure, like that I have no doubt about, the performances are tremendous in this. They really are. And Russell Crowe as Noah, who has a difficult job to to do in this film, is so good. It's one of his best performances I think I've seen in years and certainly most nuanced. He is playing Noah, who is at times both the the misunderstood hero and at times the total villain of the piece and then back again. Um, and it's that complexity that makes his performance interesting but at the same time it's that that makes this film difficult to get into 100 percent. sure in story term wise it's aronofsky's trying to say a lot but he's also it's almost too much and you're never really quite sure exactly where he's coming down on anything either i mean here noah is like the descendant of Seth, who was the other brother with Cain and, a- Cain and Abel, who are sort of peace-loving people now, and they've been hunted almost to extinction mm. by Cain's kids, who are basically us. Hello, <laughs> you know, you know, but, raisin Cain. Yeah, a bunch of dicks, and uh, they're like he's given a message by God through visions that there's going to be an apocalypse come, and he's going to kill everyone on Earth with water, and he has to build an ark and save all these creatures. Now. I am not like super Bible literate, but I don't remember the him there specifically being a point where Noah was like, No, 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 we're not supposed to survive either. Like this is just the creatures. God's gonna kill all of humanity and, and you know what, if God says it, that's how it's gotta be. Well, I like I said, I, I would have learned it in Sunday school class, so even if that was part of the story, they would have just like Grimm's Lost brothered it. Over it. A little bit. You know, Disney took all like the sweet parts of the Grimm's brothers fairy tales and left out all the really like Horrible, like, oh, the little mermaid isn't it sweet. She becomes human. It's like, yeah, and every step she takes feels like razor blades are digging into her feet. <laughs> I guess we're just going to casually omit that part. Yeah, I'm kind of glad they did. Yeah, I am too. But like, I'm just saying, even if it was part of the original story, it was this probably. This version of Little Mermaid brought to you by Payless Shoes. <laughs> if you don't wear Payless, you might as well be a fucking mermaid. Because <laughs> why would you need shoes? <laughs> um, Russell Crowe, as Noah, is married to. Jennifer Connelly, who's given the name Nameh, even though apparently it was not given a name in the Bible. That's how woman-centric the Bible was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bible's uh, really gender uh, gender equal. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, who, like, you know, is there for him for the long haul. She loves him to death. She believes everything he says. But even she is taken to task when it comes to that point where, like, it's his opinion that God wants all of humanity to die, including them, versus a scenario that involves possibly killing his own grandchildren, you know, murdering his own grandchildren. Uh, the Emma Watson is on here as sort of a adopted child. They find a, along the way. It's nice to see Emma doing something. That's not a coming of age film yeah. and Harry Potter is something really different. Where she's this is more really like coming different. of a second age yeah. where man will not be around. Apparently, but apparently did it all worked out coming of the apocalypse. The, the apocalypse light. Yes, apocalypse yeah. light. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I think she does a really good job, but like, 
the most interesting character in this whole thing I thought was actually Anthony Hopkins as Methuselah. Is was Methuselah actually did he ever interact with Noah in See, the Bible? Now you're asking me questions to which you know I don't know the I answer. I don't know the answer to this at all, but he's <laughs> Noah's grandfather. And he has small screen time, but he's really fascinating in this. And he's kind of like they play him for sort of like the mystical, magical old wizard on the on the cliff type of role. Yeah. Like guy's got like a very close connection to God to the point that he can kind of do some shit himself. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's Methuselah the White. Yeah, I could, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to see him come back and be, you shall not use movie pass. <laughs> I think it would be thou shalt not pass there at that go. point. <laughs> um, it's a, you know, this film, a lot of the, the pe- things people positively said about this is how visually gorgeous it is. And to an extent, they're right. I mean, conceptually, I think it's very pretty. It has a lot of problems with some of the CG, I thought, which yeah. is surprising considering how proud they were of it. They did a lot of marketing about, it. oh, they did all new things with CG no one's ever done before in here. And I was like, you made the infant babies CG, and they looked like they were, why? Yeah, there was no reason to at all. In and, fact, that creeped me out a little and bit. And birds and various things where they were like, it was one thing if with all the animals, but when it was separate shots, you're like, why didn't you use an Just actual... get a real damn horse. Yeah. It's not that difficult. I, I, I found that it really took me out of it. Yeah. And you know, you know what? On the... In the beginning, there was darkness, and then the screen lit up, and I was kind of excited for this movie to start. And then as I'm watching it, because I like Aronofsky, but I felt like this movie kept me at arm's length for some reason. Like, I could not connect with it, and I don't know if it's because the... I mean, I guess there's something to be said for giving us a more complex Noah. I mean, mean, he definitely has his own character arc, if you will. Um, I see what you did there. uh But I just... I didn't care. Like, it just didn't reel me in. There was nothing about... I mean, you talk about the performances being good, and I, I think, technically, absolutely, they are they are strong performances, but there wasn't a lot of uh, empathy, I guess. On it, They didn't do a, a good job with me of, like, drawing me into these characters. And the, the weird vegetarian agenda of the film, just really... I was like, I was... My head was spinning. Like, what is it you're trying to say? Yeah, I don't have a problem exactly. with them necessarily being vegetarians, but they bring it up a lot. But they, they, they literally go to a point where they make the eating of animals look like something that was only occurring in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Like, it looked like the most pagan act ever, and it's like... It's described as such, It's much. survival. Like, I don't understand. Like, and I, like, if you want to be a vegetarian, great. I don't have a problem with vegetarians. I have a problem with basically trying to rewrite human history to frame it in the context of, well, we would have been better off if we just hadn't eaten animals because that is some Starbucks liberal douchebaggery. odd that, like, he's taking this context of, as far as I'm concerned, a purely fictional story, and but one with great impact on humanity nonetheless, and has really made it more like Lord of the Rings than he has, like, the Bible story. I mean, there's huge fantasy sequences and battle sequences that obviously did not take place in the book. You've got your villain, played by the always wonderful Ray Winstone who's Tubal Cane which sounds like a topical ointment yeah I think um, I had I think I was with a girl and I had to use that afterwards <laughs> who is really good but they and they start to build him as like trying to argue the other side of the the coin the other point and they never really have the courage of their conviction to do it either like the film kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too and saying oh like obviously there's a deeper you know 
it's it's much more complex than the Bible story, and these are real human beings with real complex ideas. But God's always right, no matter what. Right. I mean, it does things like insinuate strongly that evolution was how life got here, and yet have God be just completely unassailable in his logic of like, you know what, I fucked up, so I'm just going to kill See, everybody. And that actually <laughs> filled me with a lot of promise at the beginning, because it is a religious film that does acknowledge in a very subtle way evolution well a lot and of- doesn't draw that line but you know but you know as well as i yeah. do there's a lot of like fundamentalist christians that are like sure. you only teach creationism in schools or fundamentalists you're right and i found that a lot of like modern day christians like to interpret like you know the days why does a day have to be 24 hours you yeah. know it's like it's the bible a lot of it is there for interpretation and poetry and what have you you know it's the message that's important and the seven days were millions of years there's no reason why evolution can't be con- included in that and that uh metaphor sure and the movie kind of like in a in a subtle way but nonetheless yeah. it's still very much it's a there. visual cue that kind of yeah. addresses it says that and there's parts where it seems like it's doing this really sort of like there's no reason god and science can't coexist and there's but the rest of it is just like, oh wait, no, this is this is just a pure fantasy film, and it's there's a lot of things like that, both as well as with some of the character beats. I find that what worked the strongest for me was really uh, just Russell Crowe himself in this, and the scenes that actually towards the end were very emotional. The performances are so good that I actually found myself really getting into it, despite not, despite looking at, all right. <laughs> Russell Crowe's motivation is that of, in today's context, a completely crazy person. You know, you're like, wow, you're a crazy asshole needs to be in jail. (laughs) But in the context of, no, he was totally right about building an ark, and obviously there is magic in God and all that. You're like, okay, it's kind of hard not to listen to him, too. And he is a split between, you know, knowing, feeling what the right thing is in his heart and knowing that he should do what God wants him to do, as the audience is. It just doesn't necessarily work. You're just like, will someone please just punch him in the face and get this over with? <laughs> Sometimes you just don't know which way to go. Oh, did you go there? I did. And it felt so good. Richard, come back. Nope, nope, he's gone. Sorry, gone forever. Goodbye forever. Uh, like I said, I think this is a film ex- uh, that is very much worth watching, but it's uneven and is probably my least favorite of the Aronofsky films. If nothing else, it felt like... There was probably a, a large amount of looking over his shoulder with this, as you as you would imagine. Even though, oddly enough, the studio cut like two or three different cuts of this film against his will, mm-hmm. tested them, and none of them tested as well as his original cut, so they just went back and used his original cut. Well, there you have it. Yeah. Uh, this... It's weird that the studio wouldn't be as correct as the artist who made the film. I know. Um, the uh, And oddly, most Christian groups and Jewish groups stood up in defense of this film, actually said we really like this and we think people should see it, which is was kind of startling to me considering. Yeah. But that being said, this Blu-ray comes with about an hour of supplemental features. There's a 20-minute look on about shooting in Iceland, where you know, which is where they did. I, I didn't know anybody shoot, shot in Iceland. Uh, for the record, Iceland is green, Greenland is ice. Yeah, I, I learned what, that from Mighty Ducks 2. They, tra- they should change their names. Yeah. Really? Mighty true. Ducks 2? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's about 20 minutes on the arc exterior, a battle for 300 cubits. Uh, that, that is the, <laughs> that is the lamest 
special feature title of a battle for 300 cubits. It's, it's not so good. But talking about how they tried to take the stuff in the Bible and figure out how the, the Ark would actually be and how they built it. And then 20 minutes on the Ark interior, Animals 2x2, two two, that takes a detailed look at the interior sets of this and how hard it was to build it and shoot inside this dark space and, you know, how basically how they did all that stuff. And then you flip that special feature over and it's like, but take back 10 cubits for the Hebrew God. No, no, and no. then it's like, they're digging in the wrong place. That's, that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's oh, a totally different. that's a different Ark? By the way, I was just hearing the other day, okay, so there is a Hollywood archive in Hollywood An that's archive. like a giant, shut up, <laughs> giant museum of like, you know, valuable props and stuff mm-hmm. that is like a giant boxed up warehouse that you can go if you're very special and you know the right people to get a tour of. And the Ark of the Covenant is in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that's where they keep it guarded by top men. Top men. Top men. <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking about a completely different Lost Ark, aren't I? Yes. All right, well, that was Noah, and we're going to move on from there to another recent theatrical release, and that is Dom Hemingway. Yeah, this one actually is a few weeks old. Sorry we didn't get a chance to review this before. It just, I literally didn't have it in my hands at the time they sent it really late. But this is a British black comedy crime drama uh, starring Jude Law in a... I mean, in a titular role as the character Dom Hemingway. This had one of the best trailers of last year, I thought. Yeah. Like one of those, like, damn, what the hell is that movie about? Yeah. And what you got here is he is a safe crack, master safe cracker, who's been in jail for 12 years and basically, like, he refused to rat out his boss, so he did the full time, even though he didn't have to if he had, which has estranged him from his now dead wife and his daughter. But he's out of jail now. He's picked up by an old friend played by Richard E. Grant, who we never see enough of, who's wonderful, uh, who's like, okay, I'm going to take you out to see the boss who realizes that he owes you. You did 12 years for him. You never said a word. You know, he wants to let you know he appreciates you. Uh, played by uh, Dom- Damien Bashir. Ah, uh, yes. And they go out to the boss. The boss has gone from a small-time crime lord to a fucking rich motherfucker with the multiple estates. Brings him out there. It's like, hey, I'm... We're coming out here, we're going to party, I'm going to show you a good time, and then I'm going to give you your reward. Well, Dom has a bit of an alcohol problem. A bit. You know, the guys who have that, He makes me look like a teetotaler. That's true. The guys who have an al- severe alcoholism who haven't drank for 12 years and then suddenly have all the alcohol in the world put in front of them... Yeah. ...can go a little bit off the rails. <laughs> a little bit. And Dom, sure enough, uh, just starts freaking out almost immediately. <laughs> you start pounding him full of scotch. Mm-hmm. Well... You know, and well, there's there's all that on top of the fact that he's a complete sociopath. Oh yeah, and is completely narcissistic. So when the the booze starts getting into him, he starts like mouthing off and saying things like, "I deserve this and I deserve that and fuck you and fuck that." And it, and he's basically feels like he is absolutely invincible. Yeah, like nothing can touch him. Yeah, he's on this coke and alcohol frenzy basically, yeah. and it makes it even worse that Fontaine's girlfriend, Paulina, who is indeed just gorgeous, come he's on, like, uh, he's like, you know what I want? I don't want just what I'm owed. I want a present as well, and that present is your girlfriend. I want your girlfriend. I mean, something you just don't ask for. Yes, you don't ask for like a crime boss who is you know your boss as well. Like this is like. Well, I remember sitting in the theater when he asked that. I was just like, holy shit, this movie is not fucking around. Like, it is kicked off to the point where, like, I don't know, ten minutes in, and we have our uh, anti-hero protagonist basically in the face of his crime boss saying, I want your girlfriend. I'm just like, holy shit. Now, 
This doesn't go the way you would think it would from there. Not at all. Actually, that is just sort of that whole sequence, the whole beginning of the film, the first act is really just to introduce you to Dom Hemingway, who, after that night of going crazy the next day, realizes how badly he's fucked up and how what a wasteoid he is and Mm -hmm. wants nothing more than to make peace. And it is not a let's hunt and kill Dom Hemingway film. It's a Dom wanting to just have a life again and not being sure how to do it with a series of sometimes funny, sometimes bittersweet escapades. And ultimately about him trying to reconnect with his daughter and now grandson who want nothing to do with him. And it turns out his daughter is the mother of dragons, which has got to be a surprise for him. (laughs) Yeah, Amelia Clark. Yes. Who who looks very different without long blonde hair. Without the long blonde hair. Yeah, I had to yeah. stop the movie and look it up. I was like, who is that? It's, like, it's Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think this is a really fun movie to watch if mm-hmm. you can, if you're one of those people who doesn't have a problem with total asshole lead characters, because he is a total asshole. And this is really about a guy hitting rock bottom and then just starting to find the first rungs on the ladder to climb back up to humanity. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because it's it's not really a prison, I get out of prison, I want to reform movie. He literally hits rock bottom after he gets out of prison. Yeah, yeah. Like, prison for him was not rock bottom. No. His ego, like, put him in a situation where he was able to cruise through prison, and it's when he gets out and continues to let that ego manipulate him that he finally does reach that low point and has to sort of find the humanity. And what I find interesting about the movie is that I love it when films are able to, in a subtle way, uh, have a uh, create a tone that sort of matches the personality of its main character. And I felt like the sort of, like, mod, rock and roll, you know, kind of coke frenzy of, of like, the editing in the first act was so indicative of the character. And then there's a scene later on where he's forced to open a safe, like, uh, or a time limiter. He's going to Which have a very the funniest scene in the entire nasty movie. thing happen to him. And like that scene is just like you can feel the tone shifting as the character is changing. And I thought that was really interesting. And I also love that the criminal that makes him do that is played by the guy who played uh, Hi Hat in in Attack the Block. Oh, who was like that, the gangster. Yeah. Once again, looked familiar. Wasn't sure who. It yeah. Was. Super awesome. But yeah, I I had a lot of fun with this movie. I will admit that I think the third act kind of drops off a little bit, but I. I am one of those guys, believe it or not, who can really rally behind a total asshole. And I found him, I found <laughs> And thus, oneofus.net was Oneofus.net. <laughs> on the sixth day, God created oneofus.net. And on the seventh day, he regretted it. Uh, so, But I think Jude Law does such a great job with this role in finding the balance between complete scumbaggishness, which is a word I made up, and, and charm. Like, he really is engaging throughout all of this. I mean, so. part of it is just the really manic performance that he's giving here that's so... I mean, he is an asshole, and he's no one you'd want to hang out with. No. But watching him go, and obviously he has a brilliant mind, because nobody can come up with the clever insults that he does (laughs) (laughs) so quickly. I mean, he is hysterical to watch, but... I, you, you and I both know there are people out there who just can't get into a film if they don't like the main character. And, Absolutely. And honestly, it takes quite a while in this film before he starts realizing, you know, his biggest problem is himself. Yeah. Like, though his world is crumbling because he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and he just isn't. Yeah. You know? I do like the cacophony of cock jokes yeah. that, or cock insults that just fly out of this I mean, guy's mouth like, like music. The movie starts with him getting a prison blowjob and the whole time, like, doing a, 
absolutely hysterical monologue on why his is the greatest cock in the universe. Yeah. That's so funny. It's it's about his monologue. That's that's what the that's what that whole scene's about. Uh, I do really enjoy, did really enjoy this film. I can see how it probably didn't sell as well to American audiences as it did to English. It's a very British type comedy. Shades of train spotting, shades of even about a boy a little bit, I thought, where it was like that sort of like total self. About self, a really fucked up boy. Yeah, totally self involved asshole who basically ends up realizing that he wants the simple things in life. It's not this, this idea of who he is is nothing. It's those things he never thought, even thought about pursuing seriously is what was important. Um, I, I, I did thoroughly enjoy this and I will go back and watch it again for, if nothing else, like I said, uh, Jude Law's performance and some of the great directorial stuff in here. There's some really clever visual moments in here, especially a uh, car accident that happens at oh, one it was point. Beautiful. Yeah, it's just beautifully shot. And so just really great scene. It reminded me of the, the car accident in, uh, the Let the Right One In remake. And yeah. Let Me In. Yeah. There's this beautiful car crash moment in that that is just like stellar to behold. And I, I kind of found that same experience watching the car crash in this movie. Well, filmed very differently. Both were like, wow, very stylized and beautiful. Um, this come, Blu-ray comes with several promotional featurettes. Just to look at the various different things on uh, the movie. There's a loop of uh, these two topless blonde women playing ping pong that you actually see at one point in this rich guy's house and that he has a loop as wall art and you can actually put that on your television and see, just watch that at home. That's that's just generous. I, that is very forward thinking. It was a clever studio. thing to put on there. Yes. And then well, the, you, an audio commentary by the director and a gallery. So really overall, this is actually a pretty cool little Blu-ray. Absolutely. Good times. Well, from there, we're going to move on to... Hold on a second. Yeah, Dom Hemingway is going to be my pick of the week, by the way. Yeah, me too. Everything else, I'm just not. I mean, I, there's several other things in here I really liked. It just that is definitely, the, I think, the high point of this week. True. Yeah. And speaking of the opposite of high points, which is to say low points, why don't we talk about The Protector 2? What? You didn't totally love The Protector 2? No! <laughs> no. These movies... Okay, let me let me... Let's all get in a time machine and travel back to 2005 when the hottest martial arts prospect on the market did not come from China, did not come from Japan, but instead came from Thailand and was a guy named Tony Jaw, whose physical prowess as a martial artist, his ability to reach unparalleled heights with his kicks and do parkour and do stunts without wires. I mean, this guy was the total package and we were all in awe of him. And those two films that came out that really put him on the map were The Protector and Ong Bak. Yeah, both, both tremendous. Excellent. Yeah, tremendously fun, really well choreographed, just great martial arts films. And The Protector has a shot in it that I think is still one of the greatest achievements in martial arts. It is a static shot. It is unbroken as he travels up this, like, it kind of looks like a like a parking structure where it, like, keeps curling around as you go up. And he's just fighting people on the various levels, and he keeps going and keeps going. Nothing is broken. They did this all in one shot. So never mind the fact that it's well-staged. Never mind the fact that, you know, they didn't screw up at any point. It just keeps going and keeps going. It's beautiful. And I was really looking forward to The Protector, despite the fact that I did not like the Ong Bak sequels. See, I like the second one. It's a, it's a, like, it might as well not even be a sequel to Ong Bak. Thank you. I mean, yes. it's, <laughs> I mean, it goes back several hundred years and goes like, oh, here's a totally different guy who's an ancestor of the yeah. guy from the first one and more saving the elephants shit because yeah. for some reason Tony Jaw's just a fucking obsessed with elephants. Let me, let me just, let me say this for the Protector 2. Motherfuckers just can't stop stealing Tony Jaw's elephants. Why yeah. you gotta steal Tony Jaw's elephants? You know, honestly, anything else, and you're fine. 
but just you fuck with his elephants and you're going to bring out the beast. I don't get know? it. I don't understand why everybody in Thailand wants his elephants. Just- yeah, it, like there's got to be elephants all over the goddamn place, but they always got to pick his elephant. And sure enough in here, Tanja won't sell his elephant Khan. Khan! Khan! Uh, to a trader who... Even though he wants to give him some magic beans for it. Right? Uh, but Khan gets stolen and there's all this... You know what? The plot is absolute Who nonsense. Who I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just an excuse to put Tony Ja versus pretty much everyone in Thailand, as near as I can tell. Like, early on, there's an action scene where, inexplicably, <laughs> he has trouble fighting people riding mopeds. I'm like, why is that a problem? Well, not only that, but it's like, he's fighting, like, five or six of them, and then he hits the street, and there's, like, a, like a swarm of them. Like, it's suddenly he's in a hard day's night and being right. chased. There's, like, 500 <laughs> moped riders who all want his blood, and you're like... What the fuck is going on? I here? swear to God, if you start playing the song "Hard Day's Night" during that scene, it's so hilarious. <laughs> it really is. But th- here's the thing: or any given monkey song, any given any given Beatles song or monkey song. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but here's the thing: the reason we loved the Protector, the reason we loved Ong Bak, is because there was nothing fake about it. Like all the stunts we were watching, we were watching them happen. We were watching people dive through rings of barbed wire and right over cars as they were moving. Like, there was nothing false about it. It, it had a sense of danger to it. And there was a rawness to those films. Yes. Uh, a sort of indie quality that you, you know, there wasn't a lot of pretension. Yes. It was just like, this is what we, we always wanted to see in this. Whereas uh, The Protector 2 is what happens when Tony John and his team sit down and watch every Jackie Chan film in a row and decide, yeah, we want to make movies like those. Well, but even then, even then, the early Jackie Chan movies were the same way. There wasn't a lot of falsity to them. But what pisses me off about The Protector is that it fundamentally misunderstands why we love Tony Jaw, because almost everything in this movie is CG. And I'm not just talking about the stunts. Almost every location where they are is is superimposed yeah. and looks Awful. Yeah. And I don't know if they thought this movie was going to be in 3D, but there are like 3D gimmicks, like oh, things no, flying is, at the screen. Yeah, it's available in 3D. Okay, that's why. It but too. it looks terrible. The, th- the thing is, is like, I think that the fights themselves in this movie are kind of solid. They're not bad. There's great Tony Jaw moments. There's great Tony Jaw stunts. There's, you know, he does all the Tony Jaw moves. Like, my favorite is always the elbow on top of somebody's head. He does the Muay Thai yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it looks good, except for when they can constantly have to interrupt it for a 3D moment, which looks terrible every single fucking time yeah. it just stops the action dead and the the actual editing of the fights doesn't make any sense either it constantly goes like okay the guys run into each other and suddenly they're in a completely different place than they were before and it's yeah. really obvious that this thing was done by someone who really didn't understand how to put this sort of film well it together. also feels like they've uh, I don't know I, I don't understand and maybe it's my naivete because I've never been a director of photography but I don't understand how shooting a movie in 3D means you can't use any real locations. I don't understand. Like, there's literally yeah. points where they're standing, and it's clear that they're completely superimposed into the entire location, and it's like, why can't you just shoot at a real place? Like, we've literally gone from none of the stunts have wires, it's all done for real, to not even the places where they're standing are real. True. It's the complete opposite of what we like about Tony Jaw well, And when I brought up Jackie Chan, is more in the sense of, like, the stuff that he is cribbing from here that doesn't work, which is like, oh, we need to have more of a sense of humor. Oh, the jokes. And so they try really hard, and the type of humor here is the stuff that you used to see in movies in the 80s that were coming out of Hong Kong, where you forgave them because it was like... Well, this part of this industry is really just getting started, and they're just starting to watch American films yeah. and ape stuff from them. There's a 
really embarrassing sequence where he and this guy are fighting on a subway train and they stand on the third rail, which right should kill you. Yeah. But no, it just infuses their body in electricity so that now when they hit each other, it makes sounds like lightsabers. Oh, it's the lightsaber sound. Not, not a sound no. like lightsaber. They make the lightsaber sound. They went to Industrial Light and Magic and took the audio file for lightsabers and it's it's ridiculous. As is... <laughs> The the whole fight where or the fight where the guy falls under the the truck and then the truck runs over his head yeah. and then he looks up like oh thank God I was wearing a helmet I'm like yeah it that was also be. the most fake CG in the entire movie Very and it's true. not even that funny I don't like I just don't get it yep. and neither do the people that are making this and I will also say this when we did the spill review for Man with the Iron Fist. I was the one giving Riza a pass huh. because I felt like he was he was very genuine and he really loves these movies and it's just his love letter to them. And yes, he's not the greatest actor, but I thought he carried it okay. I would like to kindly revoke that pass. Yes, because he in this film and, and something else I saw recently, I don't even remember what it was, another like uh, imported film. He's just so awful there aren't words. Yeah, he's, it's, just, he's really, really bad. Yeah, he, he plays the main villain here. Which, once again, I still can't even explain what his deal is. He he ranks people, fighters. It's yeah. a tournament He's of supposed some kind. to be the top fighter in a scene that feels when he finally has to fight Tony Jaa after you've just seen Tony Jaa kick people's ass who are clearly faster and better at martial arts than he is. Yeah. It feels kind of like that Bruce Lee versus Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scene where you're like, okay, I'm going to go with this just because it's cool these two guys are fighting, but yeah. obviously Bruce Lee would have torn up the floor with them rather quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just, I don't, it's fundamentally wrong. Like, if you liked The Protector, there is nothing you're going to see in this, in my opinion, that is making it go, that's going to make you go, oh yeah, absolutely, this is this is worth my time. Well, I, I don't necessarily agree with you there. It's not a worthy sequel to The Protector, that's absolutely sure. But I think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of martial arts films out there with good martial arts, but everything else sucks that you can sit through if you're a hardcore martial arts fan. And I think this actually does have enough martial arts in it that are pretty cool and stunt sequences that I'm like, it's still worth seeing if you're a Tony Jaa fan, if you're a martial arts fan, just be ready for one of the dumbest mm. plots and, and poorly designed like, uh, scenarios of any martial arts film you've seen in a while, yeah. but not even the worst one we're going to talk about today. Well, I was going to say, like, I did. I wish I could have found anything, any, any stunt, any fight sequence to latch onto, but I literally didn't like any of it, and I was upset because I was like, okay, maybe because I didn't like Ong Bak Two, but I thought maybe Protector Two, maybe they'll get back on track. Not so much. But what that is a nice segue into uh, what has been released by Magnet, the entire Ong Bak trilogy. Uh, obviously, the first one is great. There's not going to be a lot of argument between us about that. Uh, you seem to like the second one a lot more than I did. Yeah, I actually even can arguably say I like it a little better than the first oh, one. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a very different type of film, and I tend to like the period piece films, and it's so insane and over the top, but it all works for me. The biggest disappointment is just that it's not really a sequel or even a prequel to Ang Bak. It's practically an entirely different film. It's sort of an in-name-only sequel. I mean, that and the fact that it ends on a to-be-continued, which is a really dumb thing to do for a martial arts film, and the third one is basically like... Buddhist philosophy for 90% of it and 10% fights, which who the fuck wants to see that in a Tony Jaa It's a good balance for a martial arts film, right? Well, they didn't even know they were going to make it because Tony Jaa just ran off into the jungle at one point claiming he was going to retire from making films and was going to become a Buddhist monk. Oh, he went the Axl Rose route. Yeah, pretty much. Just ran into the jungle and said, I'm done. Goodbye. Yeah. And the jungle's like, welcome. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got fun and some games. Yeah. 
Uh, but obviously not enough to keep him there because he came back with his tail between his legs going, okay, we'll make more movies. Yes. Which obviously did not learn anything from his spiritual journey because everything he's made since he came back from the jungle has sucked. Yeah. Ongbok 3 is terrible. Yeah, it's it's not good. I will, I will put this slightly above Protector 2 only in so much as that it has a near absence of CG, which made me happy, except for the weird elephant, stone elephant, but at least it was a dream sequence. Right. Anyway, but... Here's the thing. Um, it's nuttier than squirrel shit. Like, I'm not even sure what the hell is, is going on. And there's, it's harder to follow than a Michael J. Fox spirograph drawing. Like, I don't. <laughs> That's just me. I can't. I, I couldn't tell you. I sat there and I watched it just last night. And I made sure to pay very close attention because I knew it was going to be a period tie film that probably would have a lot of, of cultural relevance and I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this. And I watched the whole thing very intently. And at the end of it went, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. I don't understand anything that just happened in yeah. front of me. Yeah, I think it, it it's come down to, like, Tony Jaa, working with his friends, wants to help his friends, but isn't willing to call in the right kind of outside help to come in and finesse it. And he's at the exact point of his career that if he doesn't start calling somebody else who really knows what they're doing into here, he's going to become you know, forgot about. There's well, he, a bunch of new up-and-coming stars that are making Tony Jaa irrelevant. Well, now. and you know what he needs Eco to do. Wong, I you know? was going to say, man, that's exactly what he needs to do, is he needs to get in the Raid 3. They need, he needs to find a way to get a hold of Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans needs to find a part for him in the Raid 3, and then we've got something. And yeah. then we'll literally have, oh, Tony Jaa, I forgot about him, but, he, you know, Gareth Evans will construct a sequence, will construct a movie that makes us look at Tony Jaa the way we used yeah, to. Yeah, make, make Tony Jaa be the main villain in the piece. Or there maybe, you go. Or maybe the long-lost brother of the main guy or something like something that. Who are, who are at odds but eventually come together to fight the same. You know, the martial arts tropes we know and love. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, I, I'm willing to cede here that there's probably a vast cultural divide that keeps me at arm's length with this. But there's also literally a scene where a woman dances Tony Jaw back to life. But, like, if you believe in fairies, dance around, apparently, is you, what you have it, to do. He, if you watch that movie and you don't clap your hands when that scene's happening, he he actually stays dead. <laughs> well, then I'm surprised he didn't stay dead on my TV, because I was just going, the hell are you doing? No, because you kept smacking your forehead with your hands. <laughs> the face palm sounded like <laughs> clapping, and he came back to life. But, Magnet, if you are a fan of all three of these films, which, both of you... um, you can get all of them together in this one package by Magnet. Now, it's I don't an attractive looking little set. It is. It is. It's got a it's got a nice image on the front. I don't know if they I don't think they added any new No. It's the original Blu-rays with all the bonus features that came on those original Blu-rays. Oh, there but you go. Nothing extra. This is one of those let's manufacture a new shiny looking cardboard sleeve and slip the three pre-existing Blu-rays in it hoping we can get people to buy it this way. And honestly, I mean it it, it comes down to about $10 a pop. $10 a piece buying the set. It's about a little under 30 bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you wait a month or two, you're sure you can get it for a lot less than that. But I mean, when it gets down to like $5 a pop for each of these, you get these for 15, 20 bucks. Yeah. I'm like, sure. It's, it's worth it. Why not? I, I have the completest, completest thing. You know, it's like, if yeah. I have the first two movies of a series, I don't care if the third one's terrible. I kind of want to own that one too. There you go. Yeah. Well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about Dragon Wolf. I am so sad that you did not get to see Dragon Wolf. I assume it's about a uh, Scandinavian metal band. <laughs> 
You know, that would have that would have been not surprising to have happen in this movie. It's so fucking schizophrenic <laughs> that like I was like, what is going on in this crazy fucking movie? And this is the type of film that I can never tell if Brian Salisbury is gonna totally love or be like, Don't ever speak to me of it again. Because it's that level of bad that you're like you're watching going, There's no way that they didn't know that this was just horrendously terrible but at the same time mixed with i mean like you're not watching a martial arts film with people who don't know how to fight right these guys know how to fight everyone in here is a good martial artist with some solid sequences that would be more solid if the director had a clue what he was doing or knew how to shoot a scene but there's that it's enough to push you through the entire over two hour length (laughs) of this film about two brothers Oh, oh, wait, first, before we even go there. Okay. Filmed overseas, right? Lots of, like, you know, it's obviously supposed to be a Asian-style martial arts film with all the, the very familiar tropes that go in cheesy Asian martial arts films. Filmed entirely in English with one white protagonist and one Asian protagonist. Okay? And, like I said, filmed originally in English. It wasn't dubbed. Um... The intro titles have misspelled words in them. <laughs> misspelled words. And I don't mean one of those like, oh no, that's the British spelling. No, no. No, there's no alternate spelling that makes it okay. <laughs> this is how little care and caution was put into Dragon Wall. Is this an Entertainment One release? <laughs> I, I believe it is. Oh shit, I was going to make a joke. No, no, uh, it's Well Go U- USA. Okay, good. Because yeah. we, we watched that one Entertainment One release and it was like, they forgot to put the titles in at all. Right. You remember that? So it yeah, just oh, cut yeah. to the blank screen where the title was supposed to be and then back to the action. <laughs> like, what happened? We're like, uh oh. The story here is two guys, they're not brothers, they're like best friends because one of them defended the other one when they were kids and they kind of grew up together even though like they it's in Insinuated, oh, they're going to grow up to be heroes, but they grow up to be criminals. Forget it, Jake. It's cliche town. <laughs> exactly. And when the film has started, we've already something horrible has already happened that have set them at odds, where they're trying to kill each other. And they both, like the one, the white guy has kind of control over like the criminal a- empire. The Asian guy was kind of his sidekick, if you will. He was the silent one. But uh, the white guy's mainly trying to kill the Asian guy. And as it turns out, it's because the Asian guy stole the white guy's girlfriend. Uh, yada, yada, yada. A bunch of stuff that makes almost no sense at all. Uh, insinuations that maybe this whole thing was manipulated by some out- outside force. Lots and lots and lots of scenes of impossible amounts of people trying to kill the Asian guy while he does martial arts versus them. It just gets stupider and stupider as it goes along. <laughs> I am not kidding you. I mean, I couldn't even, I wish I didn't have a notebook near me when I was watching this and I wish I had just gone and gotten one. Cause there were so many sequences that were just like, what? Like one of my favorites is the final fight, the big fight. He's talking to his friend on the phone. It's like, where will we meet to finish this? And he says, golf course. And so they go to an abandoned building uh, <laughs> and there's never a golf course anywhere near. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I mean, it'd be one thing if it was a bad dub job, right? Like, like the subtitles were like, oh, they misinterpreted the word. It was filmed in English. <laughs> Maybe it's like that code talk in Casino when Joe Pesci's calling Robert De Niro and it's like, yeah, I need to book a flight, but I need to go to the airport by the... Uh, by the roundabout, and it means come to the hotel by the side door so the feds don't see you. Maybe it's code, and we just don't know it. Uh, it maybe so, but you expect if it's in a film, they're going to give you some <laughs> indication that there's a code or something like that. Maybe there's yeah. lots of weird little things like that. Like they like 
these guys have clearly watched a lot of other movies but didn't really understand them so they try and write little affectations into the characters that don't have anything to do with anything like the white guy's always going to the asian guy hey you want some candy and he gives him he's got a little hard candy in his pocket so he gives him a piece of candy and, and it means nothing it has nothing to do with anything and there's a thing where the white guy's mom is dying and constantly anytime she talks to them she's always like oh yeah you know your your buddy the asian guy he really makes you look like a total schmuck but i love you too honey it really is once again like doesn't really build to anything important here this is true garbage that is has to know it i mean it's even exploitation like there's topless woman running all throughout this movie like the final scene is this hot asian like assassin who you know kills the main bad guy but has to rip her bra off first right before she does it. Sure. Yeah. Just so you can have a shot of her standing there topless and looking to the camera. No, that's right. in the Assassin Handbook. <laughs> I, really? Yeah, okay. No. I almost want to be assassinated now. Uh, don't worry about it. Nothing. <laughs> it's not It's not planned. If it's a hot topless Asian chick, it sounds like there are worse ways to go. Are there non-sexy Asian assassins? Is that even a thing that exists? Uh, you know what? They'd probably be the best assassins. You, yeah. Because you would not see that coming. No, you would not. No. Not at all. Well, this sounds fun. This sounds like a barrel of monkeys. I might have to watch this. Oh my just, God. just to know. You might be entirely correct that it's it'll be one of the worst things I've ever seen. But I'm kind of intrigued. So, just to know, man. Just to know. Well, that was Dragon Wolf. And now we're gonna talk about Ginger Snaps. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. That's that you know, the, talk about your transit uh, tra- uh, transitory things that. Really don't make any sense at all. No. Well, much like that last movie didn't make yeah, any sense. Like any given transitory scene in there was like a bad made about as and much sense as that. Speaking of from, golf courses, ginger snaps. <laughs> you know, going from a really bizarre Asian film that's not even really an Asian film to a minor classic of horror that's being really re-released by Scream Factory, Ginger Snaps, which is, I think, in the top five of werewolf movies ever made. It's definitely one of the most interesting werewolf movies ever made. And yeah. one that doesn't... There's a real big drop off, drop off after the first top oh, two. Oh, absolutely. To be fair, absolutely. But here's the thing about Ginger Snaps that I've always found interesting is that it is a it's a werewolf movie that uses werewolf tropes to tell a more uh, human story. I guess. Yeah. It's it's something it, you see more often in vampire films. Sure. As where as the the monster condition being a metaphor for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Here, and it's also one of the few female led werewolf movies yeah here being a werewolf is a metaphor for the the complexity of woman young woman going through puberty yes. but it's not only a metaphor because it pretty much wears it on its sleeve and goes no I, it really they really are going through puberty and there's a lot of they shit. werewolves it on i mean even the point like you know a lot of the werewolf syndromes are like that happen as you start to change are like exaggerations of things that happen to women like even down to their breasts getting more tender yeah and then when a dude gets a werewolf he gets his face gets covered with zits and stuff as he's changing you're like yeah. okay i see what's happening here you're not so, supposed to not see it you're, it's it's not a long walk to discover the subtext of this film yeah it's not really subtext no it's, it's just, just text text, text. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said this is such a well done film it's really fun it's very funny at points, and it's downright bloody and horrifying it's at really points, bloody. too. It's really bloody. The idea being here, it's a suburb, a bunch of dog killings have been happening. Uh, Bridget and Ginger are teenage sisters, both of one's 15, one's 16, uh, played uh, Bridget by Emily Perkins and Ginger by Catherine Isabel. 
And they're they're basically Harold from Harold and Maude. They're obsessed with death and they set up fake tableaus and shoot pictures and video of each other, foe killed and stuff. And nobody else likes them in school. They're like the rejects at school. But uh one day they're attacked by a werewolf and they manage to get a, get away from it. Uh, but Ginger is bitten. And, well, you know what happens when you're bitten and you survive, right? You start to turn into a werewolf. And so we watch You get him. Lyme disease. Uh, no, Wait. that's ticks. Ticks. That's right. a wear tick. Wear tick. Sorry, yeah, my bad. Totally different thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens if you're bit by Richard. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, you get Lyme Limey disease. disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why isn't that racist? Shouldn't that I don't be racist? Know. It probably is, and we're Nobody just too Nobody ever assholes. says any insults against British people are racist. It I, be I racist. think it's just. I think it's just because we're such big assholes that we just don't know what it what what's offensive it, anymore. It, it could be that. Uh, so we're watching like Ginger is. At first, very resistant, but then starts to really embrace these changes as, you know, she's sleek. She gets white streaks in her hair. She starts to dress sexy. All the boys in school start noticing her. She's her hormones are going out of control. And uh, Bridget, who is a much more of a, you know, hiding underneath her hair type of girl in baggy clothes, mm-hmm. doesn't know what to do with the situation at all, only as it escalates past just sisters separated by one going through puberty and the other not into shit. Ginger is actually killing people. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bridget's realizing she's going to have to take real responsibility for this one way or the other. And whether that means killing her own sister or imprisoning her or whatever, I don't even say, <laughs> yeah. uh, she's going to have to make a decision. And I think it's that arc of watching Bridget have to go through these difficult decisions. It's really the biggest strength of this film as this actress who's so mousy at first, as she starts to gain self-confidence and starts to really go like, you know what, this is all up to me and I have to be the one to do something. It's a really fascinating voyage that she takes and makes for a very strong film. And even I'm told exceptional sequels. I've never seen either. I haven't, I haven't seen the sequels either. They both got really terrific reviews from everyone I've ever talked to who's seen them. And from what I can see on Wikipedia as well, so they're one of those, like, I kind of wish they had put this out as a box set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that would have been interesting because I, yeah, like you, I haven't seen the sequels, but I do really like this. I like the not-so-subtle metaphors. I like the performances of the two girls. I like, you know, any movie that kind of puts a different spin on what it means to be an outcast as an adolescent. Uh, I do think it's interesting that this movie was so affected, the release of this movie and the the distribution of this movie was so affected by the Columbine High School massacre. Like, because when it when it was coming out, I mean that that's what was happening in our in our culture. Oh, I did not realize that. And that people was... kinda got upset by I mean, you have to remember, like, suddenly we were looking at violence against teens as a completely different thing. And I feel like this movie would have been a bigger like it wouldn't have been just a cult hit, but may have been an actual bigger hit in the mainstream yeah. if it hadn't been for the unfortunate timing of when it did come out. And it did. The horror and sci-fi community gave this com- lots of love when yeah. it came out. But unfortunately, it just didn't have, a, you know, situationally uh, a position to be able to do as well in the theater as it really deserved to. Otherwise, both these actresses would probably be very well known now. Um, mm-hmm. I believe Catherine Isabel has indeed gone on to bigger things since. She's actually plays uh, a role in Hannibal right now. Yes, that's correct. Margot Verger. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. She's doing another horror project. There Absolutely. But um, a- Emily Perkins' main 
claim to fame has been being in all three of the Ginger Snaps films. So, what are you going to (laughs) do? But either way, this is terrific stuff. It's one of those horror movies a lot of people have overlooked because it kind of just got ignored for the last 10 years, you know, outside of hardcore horror fans who saw it when it came out. And this set from Shout Factory really does it justice. You've got two commentaries, one from the writer, one from the director. There's a a great hour-long retrospective called Blood, Teeth, and Fur. That's interviews with everyone involved. It just goes really into depth to every degree of the making of it and the reception afterwards. There's a 30-minute piece called Growing Pains, Puberty and Horror Films, where it's female film buffs talking about how the the points in this relating specifically to women are related to other films like Carrie and things like that. Sure. There are 25 minutes of deleted scenes. Holy crap. I actually watched all of these, and some of them are actually pretty cool. There's a lot of extended stuff with Mimi Rogers as well, who plays oh, wow. their mom in this film, who's kind of this hapless mother and has a wonderful scene towards the end where she realizes her daughters have you know been involved in a murder and are like, fuck it, let's burn down the house. <laughs> and, and go on the lamb. It's like you, you may have been, you may be killers, but you're my babies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's an older feature at vintage piece with interviews and snippets in the film. There's cast auditions and rehearsals. There's a look at the fabrication of the werewolves. Uh, there's a, a, a tiny little thing where it shows the director rehearsing with the actresses. Trailers, TV spots, production design, artwork. This is the whole package for a Blu-ray, and exactly the way you want to re-release something like this. The way very few people do with films of this quality of this type of horror films other than scream factory that's very true right on well that is ginger snaps and we're going to move on to wrinkles well let me tell you about wrinkles i thought wrinkles was that guy that old guy who still dresses like a clown drives around in a panel van yeah that's me wrinkles come into my van and have some candy hold on let me put my teeth in Oh, God, no! No, 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 no. Ah, that's better. (laughs) Uh, This is a 2011 Spanish animated drama that has been, this version is is dubbed into English using uh, Martin Sheen, very, which is a great decision, and uh, Matthew Modine and uh, George Coe, I think is the name of the the next guy. Uh, But... This is the most depressing animated film I've ever seen in my entire life. Wow. I have no idea. I mean, like, the only thing to be more depressing than this is if they made an animated film of Mouse, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is right up there with Grave of the Fireflies and, um, oh, God, what's the other one Uh, 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 that's super depressing and famous and everybody saw when they were a kid? Uh, Last unicorn? The, no, with the anim- all the animals. Watership down? Watership down. Thank yep. you. Now, <laughs> it's not about cute, cuddly animals dying. This is a film that's trying to be very realistic about what it's like for an elderly man who is in the early onset of Alzheimer's disease, who is put into a uh, retirement home by reluctantly mm-hmm. by his family who just can't deal with him anymore, who kind of forms a, a friendship with another guy in there who's kind of a kind of takes advantage of the mentally disabled in there to some extent kind of a small level con man uh. and watching as this main character you know is kind of given hope by this other guy to still find pleasure in life but ultimately he's got alzheimer's right. <laughs> you know he's just he's spiraling and i just was like 
why did you make this? <laughs> is this an instructional movie for people who work in retirement homes? I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, which isn't to say it's not well made. It's very well made. It's got a terrific script, great performances. It's incredibly moving. It mm-hmm. genuinely is. I mean, by the end of it, you will probably be in tears. More than likely, from it's, what it sounds like. But it's, but it's one of those, like, going into it from the beginning, you're like, this ain't going to end well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's I, I appreciate the fact that, like, I'm middle-aged now. God, I am. 44 is technically middle-aged. Woo! Yeah, I'm probably not going to make it to 88, so <laughs> I'm probably slightly over the hill. <laughs> um, and this is, like, in the realistic future. Shit. You know, being that old, dealing with all my friends being that, not you, because you're a baby. But, Hello. <laughs> you'll be the one taking care of me, Brian. Yeah, no, that'll totally happen. Yeah. I don't see any reason why that won't happen. Like, what's the cheapest <laughs> retirement home I can dump this motherfucker off I don't off care on, if they and abuse do him. you pick up? <laughs> <laughs> it's just... I mean, it's probably going to have a very different effect on me than it would on a lot of other people because I'm like, oh, wow, this is like I can I can see the distant light of being completely gray and having to have trouble walking and not remember things that wait a minute, except for the gray. That's pretty much me now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I can't wait to watch this movie. I mean, it won multiple awards. It won Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Animated Film at the Goya Awards, which is the Spanish Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. Best Animated Feature Film it was nominated for at the European Film Awards. Uh, It it was nominated for Best Feature at the Annie Awards, which is the Animation Awards. I mean, it's a very well-done movie that I'm not sure why you'd want to watch. It it won the Ovenhead Award at the Suicides. (laughs) The Uh, Suicides. Yeah, it's it's just a really acclaimed film. I just... Uh, I had a hard time I had a hard time getting through it I did because of the fact that it's just so depressing and relentlessly so. Yeah. Yeah, it does not sound like my cup of tea, but uh we'll come back to that and see what happens. Ooh, tea. Tea. We'll revisit this when I am much older and I'm sure <laughs> it will kill me as much then as it does now. I'll be like you know, you'll get a package after I'm dead at your doorstep. Dear Brian, well, I guess the time has come, old friend. I've passed on to whatever happens next. But I wanted to make sure that you had this little preview of what was to come as well. Inside is what I leave to you in my will. Enjoy. I think it's very sweet that you think you're going to die first. <laughs> well, that's, that. you know, I know you live hard, Brian, but you should have seen me at 28. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, moving on, we're going to talk about our last title of the day, which is also going to be our... And that is Coitons. It's Coitons for you, Brian. Coitons for our giveaway winner. That's what it is, Coitons. <laughs> 1983 slasher film uh, directed by Richard Quickpa. Quick, yeah, how do you Quick, C-I-U-P-K-A. C-I-U-P-K-A. I don't know. Quickpa. But here's the thing. When you watch the Blu-ray, it says it's directed by Jonathan Stryker. And the whole movie, it's... Stryker, Stryker, Stryker. Bam. Ted Stryker. Um, no, it's very meta, actually, this this slasher film, because it is about a really sort of devious director who is putting together a film, and he's looking to cast uh, an ingenue in the lead, so he invites these six actresses out to this remote location to, quote-unquote, read for the part. And the thing is, it is uh, it's a thinly-veiled attempt to have the world's 
largest casting couch session. I mean, he is very lecherous. He basically just wants to get in bed with all of these chicks. Yada, yada, yada. Old director trick. But here's the thing. Before that even starts, the woman he's involved with, uh, played by Samantha Egger, this woman named Samantha Sherwood, is sort of his muse, a woman he's worked with in several projects. But they're going into this project where she's going to be playing a mad woman. So they get this brilliant idea. We'll have you committed... And then that way you'll be able to sort of learn firsthand what it's like to be uh, in a madhouse, and that will inform your performance. This is why method acting sucks. Yes, this is why <laughs> method acting sucks. So they come with this great idea. It looks like it's going really well. And then all of a sudden we find out that he's left her there for a much longer period of time than was agreed upon, and she's a little bitter about it, so they're feuding the whole time. She knows that his true intentions are basically to sleep with all these actresses, and in the meantime, some crazy killer in one of the creepiest masks in all of 80s horrordom yeah. is is stalking and killing these actresses. Yes, which seems like a terrible waste of hot actresses. I agree, yeah. I agree. And that's kind of what I think sets this film apart from a lot of the slasher movies of the era, is that conceptually, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that you're going, they're setting up the structure we recognize from slasher films, but then they keep bending the rules and throwing a lot of red herring stuff at you. Mm -hmm. A lot of just plain weird shit. You're like, is that relevant? Is it not relevant? What does that even mean? I mean, there's a reason this kind of became a cult hit, even though it was largely forgotten about and still has a strong cult following. Yeah. Uh, it's... There's this whole thing with this doll that never adds up to anything, but it's so fucking creepy. And maybe it does. Maybe I just missed the cue. It's one of those films, There's as it builds and it gets towards its actually really cool final ending. And, and it's one of those films like, wait, who's the protagonist chick in this movie? Yeah. You're never really quite sure who the... Because usually you know who's the Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. You're not going to know in this one. Yeah, and it's weird, too, because at the beginning of the film... It's like four different movies keep starting in the middle of the movie. It's like we get this one film, and then boom, another movie starts. And then we kind of figure out how it ties in. And then another movie starts, and we're like, what is this now? Oh, wait, no, okay, I guess that's how that ties in. So it gets a little schizophrenic with its plotting, but I think what really makes up for that is the fact that it's it's a much stronger concept than most slashers went into with. And not only that, but, like, the mask. Like, there's just a scene where the person in the mask is skating in slow motion, and it's really unsettling to look at. Yeah, there's some really nice visual stuff in here. And while this isn't a bloody film, most of the stuff is like, okay, and you know what happened, but you don't actually get to see it. Yeah. Which sometimes is freakier. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of blood. It's just neat the way it's shot. There's a, uh, a whole sequence with a girl who's ice skating and how she gets taken out that genuinely made me jump when yeah. I finally did. I was like, oh, fuck, I totally did not see that coming. But the, the masterpiece of this whole thing is the, the big chase towards the end through the basement of this guy who's, you know, this master theater guy's house yeah. that's filled with old creepy prop, props and hallways made of curtains and, you know, I mean, something out of Dario Argento's brain yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that definitely. actually is really spooky and cool and visually inventive. You know, this is hardly a masterpiece. You know, it's too schizophrenic to be a masterpiece. I don't think it knows what it is, yeah. but it. As a horror fan, I found it absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah, no, I did too. And I think it has sort of that uh, that awareness of the industry that typified some of the uh, Vincent Price movies like Theater of Blood and uh, Pandemonium, I think was what the other one was called, uh, where it was like he was playing like a writer and he was playing an actor of, of horror films. And, you know, so it has sort of that weird meta self-awareness to it. Uh, and at the same time, 
it's like it it achieves daytime scares, which is always something that impresses me. Yeah. Like there are a lot of the eeriest moments in this film are in broad daylight. And that's a real achievement. And it's it's really just looking at this mask that they've created, which is really bizarre. And I love the story behind it that the director who left the project late and then had to be replaced and somebody to finish it up was so incensed that he wanted his name taken off of it. So the director is credited as Jonathan Stryker, which is the name of the director in the film. Played by Winchester from MASH. Or the <laughs> uh, the evil Dean from Animal House, John oh, Vernon. that's true, yeah. Uh, so John Vernon, you'll probably recognize. Maury Chaikin's been in a shit ton of stuff. He plays the over-the-top agent on the phone in that one scene. He also is well-known for playing... Um, he played sort of the, Weinst- the Harvey Weinstein-based character on Entourage. Like, and he does the best Harvey Weinstein impression I've ever seen in my life. Um, or he's actually, he's passed on now. That's a sad thing. But yeah, this is, this is a really cool movie. Uh, the special features on this Scream Factory Blu-ray are quite bizarre because one of them is basically like a recovered original documentary about the director. It's just spoken of in these very like, grandiose terms and they talk about how we worked with Jean Genet and like <laughs> all of the and it's just like this really sort of like highfalutin high art and it's like the whole time he's making this film and then they jump ahead to this this thing called Ultimate Nightmare which is a new documentary that they've made with the director and a couple of the actresses where the director's like yeah I basically just did this movie because I knew what would happen if I walked off uh, and I was really hoping to get fired. And it's just such an interesting contrast to this flowery nonsense of an original <laughs> documentary about how it's like, oh, yes, he was a director of photography for Jean Genet. And what we are as directors of photography is we're really the masters of light and blah, 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 blah. And then, like, 30 years later, like, what a piece of shit. I can't believe I made this. <laughs> it's just such an interesting juxtaposition. And I really loved it. Like, I don't think this is a piece of shit. I think this is a really interesting slasher film that definitely goes awry, but it's Definitely worth a look, and I think it's much better than a lot of sort of the Friday the 13th knockoffs we got around the same time. Oh, totally better than than a lot of those. No, I'd say it's better than the bulk of those knockoffs. Yeah. And I think it's kind of a happy accident that it's it's as watchable as it is. It's Yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. Good luck figuring out the ending. That's all I'm going to say. Good luck with that. There's uh, audio commentary uh, uh, and various interviews that you can do commentary style over the film that, that aren't screen specific, but still, uh, and the original trailer. And yeah, this is a lot of, I think it ultimately it's a lot of fun. Horror fans in particular, if you've never seen this, this is going to be something you'll be glad to have in your collection, which is something we can help you out with. We can. And here's how you can win your very own Blu-ray copy of curtains, courtesy of scream factory. First thing you're going to want to do is follow us on Twitter at one of us net. And then I want you to tweet at us. If you had to take something from the world of One of Us Net and make it into a slasher film, what would the name of that slasher film be? Would it be the Digital Noise VHS Tape Massacre? I don't know. Something to that effect. Uh, So give us your slasher film title, your One of Us Net's themed slasher film title. The Bodies Inside the Locker. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Hashtag that uh, curtains giveaway. We'll pick our favorite. And that person will win a Blu-ray open to U.S. residents only. Sorry about that. And then, indeed, it will be curtains for you. It'll be curtains for you! There you go. Hooray. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, of our episode this week. Yep. Thanks for having me back, Chris. I'm glad you could come back. <laughs> I'll see you in two weeks. Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> go off on your vacation now, and I will deal with that dastardly parallel universe, Brian. Apparently... Richard got recognized at ArmadilloCon. Somebody came up to him and said, Are you alternate universe Brian? Ah! 
And he was he was like, well, I didn't I didn't know anyone knew me. And I was like, I didn't know anyone watched this show. And I, I don't know why I'm doing that now, but that's funny. We were just talking about that before I left about like, he's like, that must be weird to have people come up to you and like recognize you from your voice or everything. It's like I've been won a bunch, bunch of journalistic awards because he's a great writer. Yeah, he's he won is. multiple awards, but nobody ever comes up and goes, oh, my God, are you Richard Whitaker? It's like, and now people are going <laughs> Because of us, damn it. Because of us. Uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and close out the show as I always do. And it's so nice to be able to say once again that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. <laughs>